Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, and thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles some of the topics that uh, other other uh, hosts and guests do not necessarily tackle. Um, today, we're privileged to have a guest, Margaret Alquist, who has a varied background in domestic violence issues, including with police departments. Welcome, Margaret. Hello. Hi. Um, thank you for joining us. Um, if you would like to join in this conversation, we're going to be talking about police and domestic violence. And our call-in number is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. If you have an experience with police and domestic violence, um, give us a call. Let us know what that experience was, good or bad. Margaret, off off the air, we were talking recently, just now, about the FBI involvement in um, domestic violence issues. And I'd stumbled across an FBI uh, um, paper um, talking about, from the FBI law enforcement bulletin, talking about how FBI officers can increase the conviction rates and prosecution rates of offenders. And I was kind of surprised because I didn't think that the FBI was that involved. But you explained why they're involved. What, why would the FBI care about domestic violence, Margaret? Um, what we're seeing more of now with investigations of domestic human trafficking, some of the origins um, of that come from um, violence in the home, abuse in the home, or later relationships. So um, I think that they're starting to look at the more of the dynamics of domestic violence because that's not a typical area the FBI would be involved in. Yeah. So you're thinking that it has to do with um, trafficking and what they encounter when they're investigating or, or uh, looking at human trafficking. Right, right. And initially, yeah. when the FBI looked at human trafficking, they thought they were going to be looking at the international uh, human trafficking issue. And and looking at that um, locally in the North Puget Sound, Northwest area, they were surprised to find there was more, overwhelmingly more domestic uh, human trafficking going on. So they've really, uh, it's just over the last few years, they've um, become much more involved in the dynamics of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, but they're not the typical respond, first responders to a domestic violence situation. Those would be the local or county police. Um, and I'll tell you, over the, the several years I've been in this field, I've gotten good reports and I've gotten bad reports about how police officers respond. I would assume that the response of police officers has changed over the last few years. Am I right in that? Oh, yes. It, it has changed yeah. dramatically. Okay, well then let's go from um, untrained to trained as a scenario. Untrained officers, uh, well, I know way in the past they used to just remove the the perpetrator and um, take him for a walk around the block or something. They would assume that it was just temper 
or alcohol, and then they'd after he calmed down, they'd send him right back. And of course, we're probably 20 years away from that, I would hope. Um, and now officers realize that there's a different dynamic besides just anger or substance abuse. So, how has their uh, the the understanding of the police uh, with domestic violence changed over the years? And where are we now? Well, I know when I first started in probation and parole over 30 years ago, you had no convictions for domestic violence. It was not even a crime category for it. And um, you're right where police would go, and this is their most hated call because they were frustrated. And um, they just they wanted to see that everything got better in a family home. And they really had no, you know, weren't formal shelters, um, they really, their hands were really tied. So with the domestic violence laws, I think now just uh, almost 31 years old, um, you know, that's required training. And I think as human nature, we all come to situations where we have learned from our own personal experiences, lives, and watching others and the news. And um, so you go on, you know, people go on uh, on that to make determinations. So that's where the untrained officer was coming in. So, you know, nowadays it's, uh, I mean, they have great training where police, prosecutors, um, judges receive typically the same training. Okay. And um, so how does that help? Well, you know, it is an evolving, an evolving thing. It does help because now they're looking at much clearer that, you know, who's the, the primary aggressor, who um, who can benefit from the situation, from the arrest, or from just the phone call. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's how they listen to the individuals separately now. So there are a lot of the dynamics have changed. Um, Years ago, they had mutual arrests uh, for both parties. They did some um, projects here with some smaller police departments to see if that helped. There are still some jurisdictions across the country that have, when there's a call for domestic violence, uh, both people go to jail. Is that possibility? That's the dual arrest. That's the dual arrest scenario, right? Right. And we do not do that. Yeah. yeah, which is kind of the, you know, well, what's that World War II expression? Uh, you know, we'll take them all in and let God sort them out, or we'll kill them all and let God sort them out. Uh, you know, and that's kind of the approach in that scenario as well. We'll, you know, take them in and let the judicial system sort it out. Um, why isn't that a good approach? Or is it? Well, it, they've seen a lot of damage occurs. Uh, from that, They'll, they see that the victims stop calling. Um, they mm. see that, that children in the family uh, who are observing this and witnessing it, um, that they are seeing that the batters are not held accountable. They see that they better be quiet. They see that, um, you know, the, the fallout from that, the threats then, you know, if the police call are, are called again, you'll be going to jail. And um, it just increases the danger, actually, in the home. Um, the police get frustrated, and they see that the 
the correct person um, is avoiding consequences. It um, so you know there's many other things that occur in the judicial system gets puts a, um, a conviction on a person who's a victim, and so that gets unintended consequences occur. Yeah. Oh. Um, and what do they do with the children if they're both uh, both parents have been arrested? You know, they go to CPS, and that starts another whole um, um, opens another whole bag of worms for the family. So, um, okay, so, so that's not such a good approach. So, what is? What have we moved to now? Well, and as you brought up in the beginning, it, it goes back to the training. And the consistency in the training throughout the judicial system. And I, I think mm-hmm. Washington State is pretty progressive in that training to be sure that the the judges, the prosecutors, defense attorneys, um, police, uh, detectives, protection services, um, that they try to get beyond the same page so that when they look at reports, they're using similar language. They're looking at similar circumstances. For example, you know, why is it important to look at what the weight and height differences are? You know, why is it important to look at each person's criminal history? Why is it important to um, to go ahead and interview the individual separately? And is it important to have a a police victim advocate? come to the scene and talk to the individuals, the, the victim, the close victim. Um, that collaboration with um, the police at the scene and their supervisor saying, you know, this is what I am what I am seeing, and then calling in to their records and saying how many protection orders have been ordered on each of these people and who did they, they involve. Um, are there children at the scene, and what is their demeanor? Oftentimes, we would say in the past that children who are just playing in the background, oh, we must think that the, this call really wasn't so bad after all because the children appear to be acting normally. Well, now we know that the appearance of children uh, playing normally in a uh, a traumatic event had just occurred, but this appears now to be more of a normal lifestyle. So there's a, there appears to be more of a pattern of abuse going on in the home and mm-hmm. no longer disruptive. And so then that goes into how are is the person reporting reacting? Are, are they fearful? Are they cheerful? That could be one way a victim can act. But a victim can also act very resolute. I, you know, I finally made the phone call and hearing what she yeah. says, I finally made that phone call. And you're thinking, why is she not upset? She said he had a gun to her head and there's no gun around, but how do we know if that's true? Well, you know how many times the guns have been to my head? So it's like, how do you follow up on those, um, on those presentations and those questions and the collaboration? It doesn't always have to be the presence of fear. And you'll see that um, quite often when there's been numerous phone calls about domestic violence in the past. You know, and we've gotten better about looking at 
what the injuries are. Are they defensive injuries? Are they offensive injuries? The police have gotten much better at that. They also, in noting it in the in the police reports, our, our police reports have gotten so much better about what do the surroundings look like, the demeanor, um, you know, is this person appearing to be off medication? Well, then ask that question. Who's all on medication? Who's off medication? Um, and, of course, in, you know, being aware, much more aware, and noting it in the report about the signs of alcohol, um, you know, who, in your question, who has the motive to lie? Who has, um, you know, what does that mean? And I, I call it the seven, the seven steps back in the questioning of, you know, what happened before that happened? What happened before that happened? And it's just like when you see a, a, people get upset that the, the lid is off the toothpaste and you know they're not getting below, they're not upset about where's the lid. That's just a small thing. But you go your steps back, what is underlining issue going on? You know, maybe two days before they got an eviction notice. Maybe the husband lost his job. Maybe um, someone is diagnosed with a significant medical problem. Um, has there been a recent death in the family? So there are there are issues that are going on, and um, there are there, there are triggers. And so asking those steps again, I call it the seven steps back. You get a much better picture of the dynamics going on. Now, a lot of police officers say there is not enough time for me to take all those questions down. However, you know, not every situation requires all those questions. Okay. Is it obvious to a police officer how much time do they have to spend answering those questions and getting that information? It's not always obvious. Um, it just depends where those questions lead you. Now, what really helps the police officer to determine what questions to ask is a really good um, police questionnaire and the follow-up questions on that. And that can help. That can help remind the officer. You know, I really have to follow through on all these questions, even though I think this is just a simple, you know, an accident or somebody accidentally trips somebody. Um, and, you know, a lot of times when you appear at, this, appear at the scene, visible injuries are not that apparent. But the longer you talk, you know, maybe the bruise on the side of the face will start swelling more. So you have to be constantly aware of that. And by the time they get through that format of that um, police report and getting the information back from dispatch or records about protection order history, um, domestic violence, uh, criminal history, other types of history of drugs or whatever, um, mm -hmm. there's civil orders. That By that time, you know, they're constantly re-looking at at each thing. So, you know, um, it, it depends on, yes, first impressions say a lot, but going beyond your gut feeling of, ah, I think this is just something, or the gut feeling goes like, I feel that there's something more here. 
Um, and letting dispatch know, I think I have, you know, to be off the next few calls because I've got to follow through on this or kids present or something to that, um, that they have the ability to do that. Now, different police departments handle that differently. I, you know, uh, in my experience of uh, working with domestic violence um, on my caseloads, I work with police every day. And so I hear multiple um, experiences and frustrations on the police. I really wanted to stay at that scene, but I was called out and my supervisor just felt I didn't have enough. However, they have the ability to go back and check in. Police officers do do that often. They go back and check in. And there is a four-hour period of, um, you know, of when this call came in. It depends. The call might come in and it's a domestic violence and they go and it happened the day before. You know, our police officers in our state have that requirement of the four hours. If it's more than four hours um, and there's no visible signs of uh, injuries, you know, a, an arrest won't be made. So there's there's that belief that there's a mandatory arrest. However, they have to follow the steps to what that requires before a mandatory arrest is actually in play. Okay. Tell us about, we talked a little bit about dual arrest, and I understand different states have different rules on that. Some I've heard from some people that in some states it's an automatic dual arrest. Um, in other states, it's optional. In other states, um, you know, there's the mandatory arrest. And I believe um, in Seattle we have the mandatory arrest. We have a mandatory arrest. Um, however, um, that leads one to believe a myth that somebody has to go to jail on every domestic violence call, and that's, uh, not true. Okay. Then explain. Well, you know, um, you have to have some things occur. You have to um, believe, the police officer has to go to believe that there's a probable cause that the family or a household member has, has harmed another person. Um, and, they're, you know, primarily that's a, a physical harm, and there can be, you know, uh, threats, of, uh, credible threats of harm to an individual. And again, when the police officer goes, they're looking at, did a crime actually occur? Is there enough to believe a crime occurred? It's not just reasonable 51%, but this is, you know, it's probable that the, that the crime, a crime actually occurred. And then okay. you have to be able to um, to be sure it's that that four hour window that you have mm-hmm. that um, because if a, they get a call and it happened the day before uh, the assault actually had the day before and the abusers at the home the police officers cannot go in and arrest that person it happened for. Um, or, I mean, beyond the four-hour period. So, mm-hmm. um, it, How do they know, determine it, if it's been more than four hours? I mean, they can just tell by physical, you know. Well, they do in their interviewing. They can determine that. 
Now, there have been situations, of course, that are not clean like that. Somebody could call in and say, um, you know, I've been held in my home, um, not being allowed to leave, not being able to call the police, and um, he didn't want me going anywhere. And, you know, technically that could be called unlawful imprisonment in our state. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the offender's not around. There's no proof of that. Now, okay. again, on questioning, the police officer can say, "Is there any? Te- are there any text messages? Are there any uh, phone call records? Are you know what? Who else knew that you were here? Um, you were not allowed. Well, I couldn't go to work, and nobody could find me. I mean, so they have to follow through. But you know." Um, Typically, in well, in our state, what the numbers are, say you'll have, I think it's like looking at 22 to 23 cases randomly at different batches, two to three convictions actually occurred. So there's a lot that's happened in between there, and a large part of that is looking at was there really a mandatory arrest. And, I mean, they're looking at, they're looking at all DV cases where arrest occurred or not occurred. So, um, so we can see that through the criminal justice system, there's a lot of reasons why a mandatory arrest would not occur. Now, maybe at the scene, actually, then the, the victim goes, well, I made the call, and I just want him to stop doing what he's doing. Well, what is he doing? Well, he's doing this and this and this, but there's no scene damages or injuries. And the, mm-hmm. the most important thing they're saying is the messages from the victim. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm being harmed here. I want it to stop. And I need to be really clear to this abuser that I'm not going to take it anymore. And mm-hmm. that I'm not going to, and I am not going to pursue any charges. Well, the police officer then will take that informational report, and that's, it doesn't go to waste. I mean, a lot of people think that that just, but that's a documentation of what's been occurring in the home. And at that yeah. point, police officers are required in our state to city and county and state to give information on um, what a protection order is and the resources in the, in the community that they can use. And then what we often see is they go and fill out the papers for the protection order, and it's amazing what um, the pattern of abuse has been from physical, emotional, sexual abuse has been. However, the, the police cannot go and do a arrest on that person based on the protection order. That's mm-hmm. often seen as a way to, to assist the victim in leaving the relationship and um, at least getting space, maybe not leaving it permanently, but getting space between the relationship where nobody is arrested. So there, there, we do see that occurring. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I mean, I um, am in awe, really, of most police officers because they really... That requires a lot of thinking, a lot of judgment, and uh, I can see where if you don't have proper training, that judgment could be way off. But nevertheless, that's asking a lot of a police officer to determine all of those things that you're talking about. That's a lot. It is. 
Yeah. And that's so I know I've gotten so much better to assist the police officer away from personal judgment and started mm-hmm. drawing the picture. And they're drawing a picture of the event every time they ask this next question, even on the form. So it does help the officer not to jump to conclusions or judgment. Mm-hmm. So um, I know you only work with one police department, but in, in your understanding, um, is this a general uh, approach for um, police officers mostly around the country, or it's isolated? Or how, well, if you had to give a grade of 1 to, to 10 on police officers in general in this country, as far as training and judgment, what would you give? Well, I have to say that Washington State is very progressive in, in victim safety and offender accountability. Um, they, other, other states look at Washington State as uh, the prototype and come and, and, um, and look and see how we do it. Uh, there okay. have been some examples, you know, in, in other states that where they have been very progressive in their domestic violence protocols, and then the economy tanked, and they changed how they, uh, they did fewer arrests. They were told that we're not going to be doing misdemeanor arrests any longer. And so what happened is that, and Nashville is an example of this, it used to be um, a strong prototype of how to address domestic violence by police officers. And um, so things changed dramatically and the increase of domestic violence rose dramatically. And now in the last couple years, they've changed their, um, their philosophy and retrained their um, officers based on what they knew what to do in the first place. So we... You know, with the economy changing, um, it has affected how we um, approach domestic violence. And um, there's a lot of different polls that are occurring where money is demanding. For example, white-collar white crime has increased a lot. You know, the gangs, the, the, the more um, uh, highly sophisticated theft rings through the Internet, there's the sex offender, the community, uh, much more um, up in arms regarding the sex offender cases and having very tight restrictions and very tight accountability, very, um, very comprehensive education for uh, providers for sex offenders. I mean, so... And that takes away, the money has to come from somewhere. So locally, we saw our county domestic violence detective unit dissolve. And oh, really? I, yes, in King County. And some excellent domestic violence detectives that even trained nationally in stalking and strangulation cases. And, and we're really a prototype in that unit that unit dissolved, I understand that that's going to be resurrected um, and re- reinstated again 
However, I, I'm not sure of that. So this is not um, an unusual thing. We're not unusual. Um, it's just where do you determine to be the to be uh, within your agency in the community? What to be the most important um, area to address? And it it seems that domestic violence across the country has been the one that's been hit the hardest. Do you think that's um, because is, people don't understand how fatal it can be? Yes, and I think it also connects, like in um, in days gone by, it used to be like the idea that it became an acceptance that there was like alcohol, no matter what your family dynamics are, extended your extended family has somebody who is an alcoholic. Well, that that was a huge acceptance, like you. 30, 40 years ago, finally our, our society accepted that. There, you know, we've got to address alcohol as a disease and all that. Well, it's, it seems now that we will understand that they don't want to talk about it still, is that domestic violence in your extended family is somewhere. There's, this has gone on. There are way too many um, victims of domestic violence and so there have to be a lot of perpetrators of domestic violence. And it's still not that openly talked about. So what's happened, that reflects in our laws. In, and, for example, in Washington State, our RCWs, our um, criminal code, um, a majority of domestic violence cases, um, offenses, are not considered violent. And they regularly cut down. Well, it you know it is a hard concept, and I I have a hard time with that. And that's on my list to to try to get that changed. And I just spoke recently with one of our legislators about that. That we're not going to change um, how we approach domestic violence until we accept that it is violent. Strangling somebody, leaving bruises on somebody is violent. And yeah. I believe at the root of that is we are still, um, it, it's still a secret. It's still something we want to, don't want to talk about. It's still something that somehow or other we can explain it away that, that somebody caused something and, um, that there's a lot of still there's still a lot of belief that the victim is still the one to blame. Um, yeah. That she somehow or other, if you only knew this victim, you would see why he exploded. And so the community <laughs> is still and very uneducated. We we don't talk about domestic abuse in schools. Um, there are some schools that have, like, relationship classes, they have, you know, and, and they try to talk about healthy relationships. There's a big campaign underway about having men, men um, take responsibility for other men doing this and, and not, not make it about the primary victim. We, we know it, at least 85% of the time the number is, is a woman. That you know, men are men. Men 
um, are the, the center of the abuse of the causal part. And, like, who the issue is turned around is that who harms men the most? Do women harm them the most? No. 95% of men harm men. Mm-hmm. And, and we just clearly look at that and accept that. You know, we can move forward. And yeah. there's some dynamics that are that are occurring, right? You know, and there are a lot of very wonderful men out there that are just going, you know what? We just have to say no more violence. Yeah. You know, and there's a yeah. lot of guys. I mean, guys are just, you know, these wonderful, caring, protective individuals, and they're saying, you know, I'm not going to watch another guy abuse a woman. Yeah. And um, there is a there's a building strong force in in presenting that through different avenues. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I hope really hope that continu- continues because that's the only way we're going to um, affect change in our criminal code. And how? Yeah. How influenced by popular media and popular perception is the police force? when it comes to things like this? How popular? How, uh, how much, in other words, uh, popular opinion, uh, what's in the media, um, heavy uh, um, um, popular opinion. Does that influence the police? And if so, how? I think um, it, the perception of police in the community um, has been, I think, more questioned of what their intention, that there's been an undermining of the police department regarding um, how they respond to um, minorities, how they respond to crime scenes, um, the shoot-don't-shoot policies. And I think nationally it's been talked about how Seattle has been scrutinized, our police department, um, for overlapping the cases. And that impacts a person just simply wanting to get on the phone uh, to call because I'm thinking yesterday I just heard that a police officer shot and killed a mentally ill person or a mentally Mm -hmm. ill person who was deaf or another person walking down the street with a knife out who was deaf and he didn't respond to police to turn around and they shot him. I mean, this does, it does affect us. I mean, it, it affects everybody. Yeah. So um, it does undermine um, our abilities to believe that the police are going to believe us or they're going to really respond in the way you want them to respond. Uh, we have to realize that police are not the only resource to assist in domestic violence and to help the victim stop the abuse. That is the very last resort. And and then when you do call, we really really wanted the police to protect us because we've used them as the very last resort. Um, And that's seen in a lot of different... Um, ethnic communities, too, is that you don't call the police 
And uh, so when the police are called, they really want to know they're going to be protected um, because it could be a, a cultural um, throwback and a family isolation result of doing the unspoken thing of calling the police. So there's, there's a lot of things that come into play why not to call the police. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I mean, there's the thought of, you know, police are who you call when there's a murder. You know, is this significant enough, you know, for me to be calling the police? Um, I could see where that might be, a, um, you know, something that goes on in the mind of a victim. Yeah. So, okay, so uh, when did the trend toward training police officers actually start? Was it like 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, still working on it? I think it started um, 20, no, 30 years ago when the law changed, um, mm -hmm. Violence Against Women Act. Um, it's always ongoing. Uh, the newest training is, is continuing action on determining who's the primary aggressor, how to get to a scene and and document that well. What if you get to a scene and both people have injuries? So how do you determine mm -hmm. the primary aggressor? And in our state, um, you have to go through that process. That's part of what police have to do. Um, okay. And they have to document that. And so that means they have to have good training. And that's been going on for a while, and it's always improving. Um, some of the training now is going on about, you know, firearms, uh, the access, access to firearms. Instead of questions to ask the victim at the scene to get the firearms out of the house at the scene um, because police can't come back and look for um, a firearm. In, in our state, you have to get a separate search warrant then, and it has to... It has to rise to that level. Um, mm -hmm. And so oftentimes when I would get a case, domestic violence case for supervision, I would see that there's still allegations of a gun, a firearm, and the police were, that was still not removed because it was just the victim saying there was a gun and didn't know where it was. And so, so we're looking at we have to improve our firearms uh, policy regarding offenders, and our mm -hmm. state is going, um, there's a major change in our state from the last session, um, that we have to do a better job of tracking offenders turning in their guns. Even though they're court-ordered and told, you are restricted now from possessing, uh, possessing a firearm, but we didn't have the resources for that, where do they um, actually turn them in. Um, how do you register that? And like when you get a gun and you get a gun registration, the Department of Licensing in our state handles that. And it's like, Department of Licensing, you think it'd be law enforcement. So we're, we're, um, there's some new legislation and we're working on how do we implement that. So when I get a case for supervision of a domestic violence offender, I can call that police agency and say, did this person lost this gun in? You know, um, I have to know this because when I go to do home visits, 
on this violent offender that um, I'm going to be safe, that my my co-community uh, corrections officers are going to be safe, and law enforcement, when they go with me, they're going to be safe. And so, um, so we've gotten better laws on that and better training. How do we go about that? Because of the, you know, um, the constitutional right to have arms. So there's, you know, there's been that legal change. So there's, you know, it seems like every year when we have, um, there's some kind of a law change uh, to protect victims and to more substantially hold offenders accountable. We've got to have more updated training across the board. Yeah. Um, are there special funds in our state to pay for this, such training, or do they just have to squeeze it out of the normal budget? I am not sure. Our, our state our state has one police academy that everybody goes to. Um, mm-hmm. In patrol, to their local small town, there's three police officers. So... That provides some consistency, and that is through um, the state pays for that training, and then each jurisdiction will contribute to that too. But um, you know, I'm not I'm not quite sure where that comes from. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, I want to throw out our phone number again. We haven't gotten calls yet, and I think this is a really interesting topic. The phone number to call us, 646-378-0430. 646-378-0430. And as long as I'm at it, um, Margaret, I'm going, to hand out, I'm going to give out the hotline. If you are experiencing domestic violence and you're not quite sure what to do, there is a 1-800 number you can call. They'll advise you where you can go for help or what you can do uh, to make yourself safe. That number is 1-800-799-7233. 800-799-7233. Anywhere you are in the United States, you call that number and they can help you locate services in your own community. Um, People who, uh, I, I've heard a lot recently about false arrest, that uh, women were um, arrested along with the perpetrator, um, that the children then went to um, uh, child services and the whole entire family just went kaput. Um, have, I'm assuming that that's not particularly uh, um, the case in Seattle area, but are do you have any sense for the rest of the country? I mean, the rest of the state? I mean, um, well, false arrests. I mean, it, they do occur. They they do occur. Um, there has been an increase in um, the abusers learning from the laws, you know, and the system, and even in their domestic violence treatment about <clears throat> how to make phone calls to the police, um, and it's a coercive tactic, uh, um, you know, making a false report um, about that. The uh, the actual prior victim is now getting arrested by the past perpetrator. So um, there there is is, uh, documentation of that occurring, and that occurring at higher levels. And so... Um, there 
are reviews nationwide going on about how are domestic violence treatment programs, you know, how, what is important to change in that curriculum where you're not um, teaching abusers to be better at their coercive control over the victims or their next victim. Um, yeah. it, it, and it is being seen, it is being talked about quite a bit. There is also um, that, we call it in our state, the victim descendant situation where you have a woman who's actually a victim and she's arrested and uh, charged and convicted based on the prior abuser's um, claims of abuse. And, and um, um, I, I have seen that. I've seen some really great police work that they're able to debunk it very quickly. But I have seen some cases where I personally have tried to intervene and um, and have not been so successful. Not one case, this uh, a male abuser dated four different women in one year and looking at the documents he filed against them before they were going to call or before they were going to call the police on him, he filed a couple protection orders um, because they lived together and they were dating. Other one was an anti-trespass order. Another one was an anti-harassment order. So in one year, this male offender dating four different women filed four different types of orders against them. So, um, so you know, they're you know, he didn't want to be arrested, but he put out orders to cause them, yes, you know, not just to call the police, but to um, I mean, that damaged them, that put orders into a system against them, like as if they were doing, um, they were the wrongdoing individual. Um, And then that finally resulted in the next girlfriend being arrested uh, for assaulting him, and he had injuries. She had injuries. Um, (coughs) She was drinking, he was not. And. and so it was like, because she was drinking, I mean, that was the only thing that was different. So um, I went to try to intervene. However, I was told that the charges had already been filed and there was nothing that could be done. So that was very, very frustrating. And if you looked at that offender's history, look at his conviction history, he was very good at not getting convicted and uh, paying people off. I mean, and this is not unusual. It's just in this one case, it, it was just such a visual, and I saw it was four different types of, four different orders on four, regarding four different women. And um, and one thing that really helped is that I, I worked together with the treatment provider so that would not allow him to date any other women until he completed EV treatment or there was a time in domestic violence treatment, batters, intervention treatment, that um, it was determined, okay, and then that would be something that we would we would uh, fully inform 
um, the person who wanted to date him about his history. And, um, wow, that's useful. That's, if that's with, you know, black and white information for me not even saying anything. And the treatment provider. So since that time that I have done uh, conditions on offenders, very clearly saying you will not date anybody until um, this is something that is approved by both the treatment counselor and the parole officer. Yeah. Wow. Um you know, you were talking about how, um, in that one case, the man kind of manipulated um, the system to um, further victimize his victim. And I don't think that's a terribly unusual situation. It seems like the more that we learn about domestic violence, the more websites I see by attorneys and uh, groups and uh, support groups on how men can work that system. Um, I always say if you Google domestic violence, about two-thirds of what you get is um, not necessarily about women and women who are hurt, but you get it about men and what men can do and um, uh, if they're charged or accused of domestic violence and, you know, men's rights and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So there seems to be a real heavy um, influence um, on uh, by some of these groups on um, how... Um, a, a, a perpetrator can turn into a victim. I know that's a sweeping generalization, but that's my opinion. <laughs> well, <laughs> you're right. If you do Google that, you will see. Um, you will see that. And um, I recently saw a, a, a website with that description, and it indicated that that women were the ones who really initiated, they used that phrase, initiated the violence. Um, and that was a, I mean, it was. it's a good thing to read so I can understand what the thinking process is and what individuals are being told. And then, you know, it's helpful for me and for our discussions within our professional networks. I mean, uh, we talk about this type of thing in our community coordinated response, where we have these meetings monthly, quarterly, you know, as a network, be very up to date about what are these tactics that are out there. Um, yeah. And you know, we know we we know that there are that you know relationships can be very very messy that you can have um, domestic violence where both people come to the situation with addiction issues, that both people come to the situation with, you know, economic problems, come to the situation that they were abused as children. And, um, and we come to the place where we know women are physically not as strong but we also come to the situation knowing that our society is is built um, based on a lot of different religious, cultural, social dynamics that um, that women are still considered less than, and that is necessary for our society to keep that belief system. Um, yeah. And it's it's like it's. It's part of the DNA of our society to keep that, and it's, you know, so precious because 
if we didn't keep that, our whole family systems would be undermined. I mean, there is those belief systems out there. I mean, there well, is... Well, and I always family- say that the, that the society makes the relationship, makes the woman responsible for the relationship. So if something goes wrong in the relationship, it must be her fault. Um, I always, you know, I mean, look at the women's magazines versus the men's magazines. You know, I mean, how many times do you pass a, a magazine rack that has Field and Stream or Esquire on it that talks about how, you know, 99 ways to make your husband happy or your wife happy or, um, you know, how how to be sexy when she comes home? Um, all, you know, all of our media seems to be pointed toward you know, the the whole, you know, when mama's happy, everybody's happy. You know, we make the responsibility for the success of a relationship the woman's responsibility. So if it's not going right, it must be her fault. Or, you know, even the look what you made me do. You know, um, right. you know how many times have you heard that at varying degrees? Look what you made me do. Um, nobody can make you do anything unless they're holding a gun to your head. Um so we tend to, as, an, as a society, say, okay, if something's wrong with us, the relationship's your fault. And abusers are certainly happy with that explanation. Um, so we place a lot of responsibility uh, in these things on women, and, you know, they're not always believed when they say that they have been abused. Um, the abuse is diminished. I, I spoke with an attorney yesterday who was talking about how she advises many of her domestic violence clients to just not even bring that up when they go through the divorce um, because it will work against them rather than for them. And she kind of, uh, you know, in some ways, actually I'm going to have her as a guest on the show uh, at a later date, Margaret, because she kind of ticked me off, to tell you the truth. <laughs> but I think she 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 represents a, a, a point of view that's out there. And she said that unless there's broken bones, unless there's, you know, damage to your face and black eyes, don't even bother calling it domestic violence because it will work against you. And I think that's so sad, you know, um, some of the the violence that's perpetrated against women uh, can be wholly psychological, and yet to have it, you know, uh, discounted unless there's some sort of major physical damage is just really uh, makes me feel a little, little hopeless for, for that particular person's clients. Um, and I imagine that despite the training that officers have, you get officers who have that notion despite the training. And, um, yeah, so, and and what do you do? I mean, some of this is life. You've got to deal with with people. But it puts the the victim in a terrible situation. First of all, she has to um, realize that, you know, she, she can get help, she's worth getting help, and that getting the help is going to be better than staying with it without help. And then if a police officer comes and they don't arrest or they don't, you know, for whatever reason, then she's just gotten all sorts of negative reinforcement about what she can expect for help in her relationship. Um, you know, it, it just, it, it um, I guess some of this is just human nature, but it saddens me. It saddens me. And I think it's important. I hear a lot of critiques and criticisms of police officers for their their jobs. And I know some of it is, you know, legitimate. But I think we also have to recognize how significant 
this role is for police officers. I mean, basically, we're asking police officers to go into someone's home, make an assessment, determine who's the aggressor, and then, you know, make the situation right. That's a lot to ask anybody to do, isn't it? It is. I agree. Yeah, and and when you take into account that we all have our our own experiences, our own um, prejudices, our own you know gifts that we bring to any situation, that's that's risky. You know that's difficult. And um, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is though, you know, when I've gotten mad at police officers for different stories I've heard, and I, but I, you know, we also have to remember that. They're just human beings, and some of them do have prejudices that, that don't allow them to act in a way that we we think that they should, and we can try to educate, but people are still just people no matter what uniform they wear. That's true. Yeah. So what's your recommendation? We're running out of time here. I can't believe how quickly this hour went. Um, what If a woman decides, okay, I'm calling the police, are there any rules of thumb she should know before she calls or before they come or when they get there? And and do that in two minutes, okay, Margaret? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Um, I, I think that um, by the time a woman calls the police, she already knows is. She's tried everything. She's desperate. This is like the last-ditch effort. And to say, protect herself and her family. Um, and so my, my hope is that before these, you know, that, that, um, that there's always, you know, a safe place that she's calling from is, you know, and if, that there is, um, when she's made this call that that hopefully she's gotten some support because um, it's lonely. I mean, there's a lot of losses. I compare it to when a woman is uh, uh, in the situation and calls, the, the possibilities are going to be like the whole house burnt down and everything is gone. Yes. I mean, it's, there, there could be that dramatic of a loss in your life. Um, and so my hope nowadays is that um, re- community resources. Uh, there's confidential and there's truly confidential helplines that they have reached out and talked about a safety plan. Talks about if things get so bad and I do have to leave, I do have that emergency bag um, in the trunk of my car or not even there, but at maybe a safe friend's place. Um, that yes. they've had some documentation. Um, as much documentation on email or um, whatever they're going to advise. I mean, our community programs in Washington State for domestic violence um, are phenomenal. Yes, it's... It sounds to me, Margaret, like what you're saying is get information and prepare for the worst. Um, Get some support. And you can do that, even if you haven't left, you can do that from dis- different domestic violence support organizations. And um, I would also advise women to go to those organizations, even if you're not ready to leave, because they will have information to- that will help you. Margaret, we've had a wonderful time. Usually what I do to end the show is I uh, talk uh, or give a quote that kind of fits in with our, our topic. And the best quote I could come up with is that um, between 1996 and 2009, 
combined, police officers were, or half of the fatalities of police, police officers occurred during domestic violence calls. So that's significant. It's significant on both ends. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please join us next week when we have another topic on Three Women, Three Ways.